Join me in prayer, please. Great are you, Lord. All creation sits in your mighty hand. Glory and honor all belongs to you. We thank you for waking us this day and bringing us together in this place. And we pray that in our time together you might have your way in us, among us, Lord, and through us, all for your glory. We are aware, Father, of numerous needs among our members and beyond. We give you thanks today, Lord, for a new baby in the Brummel household this week. This is exciting for them and for us. And we pray your blessing upon them as they grow together during this time of transition. We have others, Lord, that are expecting additions soon. We pray for them and and pray that your spirit of peace and comfort and encouragement might be upon them as they wait your timing. Lord, we have many who are dealing with health challenges. You are the great physician. You are sovereign over all. We pray that your presence, your power, your wisdom might abound in each situation. That, Lord, eyes would be drawn to you and hearts would be comforted by you. Strengthen them. Offer them comfort. Glorify yourself. Lord, uh, Milton Community Church is considering a ministry and mission spending plan for the coming year. It is ambitious, but not presumptive. We have no human means for accomplishing what is before us. You give us what we need to fulfill these objectives. I pray that you would make us faithful stewards according to your design and according to your riches. This is your pattern. This is your method. Make us generous and make us faithful. Lord, we pray that your name might be made great in this place and in this community. Draw our neighbors and acquaintances and friends and family to yourself. Use us to advance the gospel. Make us passionate and faithful proclaimers of the good news. Lord, bless and guide our civic leaders. I pray that you would make them dependent upon you. We pray your blessing upon our schools, the administrators and teachers, and Lord, every family and student connected. Protect and guard them. Make them to excel. Make them look to you. We pray that you'd move among our local businesses and institutions in a mighty way. We pray for our sister churches that are gathered today all across this area. I pray that you would fill your servants with your spirit. That you would make your word to go forth in great power. That you would change lives today. And that you would change this community today. That eternity might be changed. Conform us, Lord, to the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray in His wonderful name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. What a great text, what a great letter for us to study. This fourth chapter focuses upon 
new life in Christ. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but have been made alive in Christ. We're not all uniform, but we all are supernaturally united together, even in our diversity. We're all growing toward maturity, being conformed to Christ. The body of Christ thrives, excels, as each person grows in Christ. The Spirit binds us together, empowers us for God's purposes, all in love. Because this is true, Paul says we no longer live as we once did. We no longer live in the futile minds of the lost world, the darkened world. We no longer operate with calloused hearts and the things of spirit. They're all all interested in worldly pleasures, all given to worldly pleasures. In Christ, we do not live as they do. We are aliens in this world in which we're passing through. We're different. We are to live as image bearers, God's image bearers in this world, which is true holiness, true righteousness, he says. Now, since this is true, we are to think differently, we are to conduct ourselves differently. In our text today, we find five, five characterizations of what this looks like. Five characterizations, five particular ways that we are to be different than this fallen world. And through this, is one of the primary ways that God makes Himself known in this lost world. So first of all, the Apostle tells us that we are to put away falsehood, or as we put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Speaking the truth with his neighbor. I would say that he's challenging us to speak countercultural truth. Countercultural truth, because truth is not part and parcel to what our world advocates and practices in this day and age. He says, in other words, stop lying. Stop lying. We're all in favor of that, aren't we? As long as it's not us that's being put under the microscope, I think we're probably true believers in this principle. Lying was common in Paul's day. It was lying. Lying was common in the culture of Paul's day. Whether it's cheating in business practices or deceiving others or just blatantly lying. Not different from our day and age. And it made its way into the church. The people were practicing this in the church. Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10 in another letter that Paul wrote, he said, Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are His delight. Jesus spoke about lying. He spoke about the spirit of lying and where it came from in addressing the Pharisees and scribes in John chapter 8. They were trying to accuse him, and he flipped the, flipped the script on them and said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we look around our culture and we see lying as a prevalent activity or way of conducting ourselves, what does that tell you? It tells you that we're way far under the influence of the wrong party, are we not? That the enemy is influencing our culture in a destructive way. We live in a culture that thrives on deception and lying. It's not only tolerated in many ways, but it's even celebrated. Politicians are often fact-checked during speeches. This is like amusement. You see the, the banner underneath the speech, and they're constantly telling you how many untruths the politician has told you. And this starts at the top, it goes all the way through. It's like politician and lying are synonymous terms. Media headlines are often deceptively cryptic and dishonest. Photoshopping is a common thing that's expected. Advertising seems to be the art of lying. Now some of us who are old enough remember when horse trading was just part and parcel for the course. That was a, that was a genuine uh, art and hobby, wasn't it? To be a good horse trader, well it just means you were a good liar. That you could encourage a prospective buyer of your used car or your home or whatever it may be. You could entice them to believe that that was a perfect home and a perfect car. Steer them away from all the, all the problems with it. Even pastors, Nathan, even pastors talk in glowing terms of their churches. We call that ministerially speaking. That's another way of saying, as the pastor lies. We might say, today we have a thousand people in attendance here today, ministerially speaking, of course. We seem to want others to get away with untruth. Why is that? Is it because we aspire to travel the same path? that We think it will benefit us and our own untruths. Paul is clear here that it's not enough just to put away lying, but he says he admonishes us to speak the truth with his neighbor. Now he's talking, remember who he's speaking to here, he's writing and talking to the church. This is not the outside world he's speaking to. He's speaking to the church. These terms have present tense associated with them. He's talking about things that are happening even in the body that he's writing to. Stop lying, he says, and start telling the truth. Speaking truth. Why? Because we are members of one another. Specifically pointing to the body of Christ. It should not need to be said, but the fact that he does have to say it, is truly stunning. And not only to the Ephesians, he wrote the same thing to the Colossians. This was a prevalent problem in his culture, and the same is true today. He's quoting from Zechariah, where Zechariah is painting this picture of a future people of God in a city of faithfulness, he says, really a city of truth. This is our destiny in Christ. And we should be reflecting that even now. 
But he doesn't just tell us to speak a countercultural truth, but he encourages us to be controlled by a liberating love. Verses 26 and 27. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. These two verses have always given people trouble. Be angry, but don't sin. We kind of have this idea that those two terms, anger and sin, are always synonymous. How would he say this? He says, in other words, he's saying, be angry, or in your anger, do not sin. Now, we differentiate this by saying, well, he's talking about righteous indignation versus unrighteous indignation. What is the difference? What does it really mean? I think we can explain it this way. When we are engaged in anger, unrighteous anger is when we are under the control of that emotion, under the control of that anger. We're angry at something that is purely selfishly driven, and we're responding clearly to just emotion. I can be angry at sin, at abuse, at misuse. The challenge is how I express that anger. This is what he's saying. An outburst of uncontrolled emotion or violent action Avoid spewing hurtful words toward others or at others. Not seeking vengeance or retaliation toward another person or persons. Not wanting to see someone hurt because they may have inflicted hurt. Not wanting to see injustice done to someone because they have themselves acted unjustly towards someone. So how do we navigate that? How can we possibly do that? What is righteous indignation? Years ago, I was, uh, had occasion to be in an all-boys school in India. If you've never had that experience, I encourage everyone to try it once. If you, the the uh, thing is, is an all-boys school, they are just out of control. They, they look like they're on steroids all the time. Or highly, you know, sugar highs, just going crazy. And we happened to show up there just before school started for the day, early in the morning. It was total chaos in the courtyard all around the school. There was just this mass of humanity, and they were just going wild. I thought, this is a crazy place. I'm not sure what's going to happen today. Dust was boiling with all the activity. And all of a sudden, I heard the sound of a bell, a, 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 a siren, a horn, something that signaled it was time for them to assemble and get ready for school. And as they were making their way, this amped them up even more. They began running to these places. And all of a sudden, I saw this man in front of me, a grown man, grab one young man who was probably seven, eight, nine years of age, a slight build young guy, and he just grabbed him, and he took his fist, and he just came down across this young kid, across the side of his head and his neck. I thought, I didn't see that, did I really? And then he, he cocked to do it again. And I don't know what was going through in my mind, but I knew it wasn't right, and I was... I was motivated to go and intervene and I took about one step and uh, my dear friend um, Mr. Matt Kearney was with me and he grabbed me by the collar and he whispered in my ear 
let it go. I said, but he said, you're a guest here in this culture. You don't have any idea what's going on here. And I said, well, I know what I saw. Now, I was angry. In fact, I still get angry talking about that. Because it was just totally unjust and uncalled for, wasn't it? But he said, no, not in this culture, it's not. My anger was justified, but how I wanted to respond was not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is a rare word here. It communicates a response to an event or action causing exasperation, indignation, even rage. I still get angry thinking about that. I can get heated just right now telling you the story. But there's no way for me to resolve that anger. There wasn't that day. There isn't today. I simply have to trust God in that who is sovereign over all things. I have to believe that He will balance that justice, that injustice, right? Another illustration. You may, be, you may be angry at the harmful action that takes place. Let's say you have, you have uh, two children, right? Uh, your children, your grandchildren, you're watching them and you see one do something harmful, hurtful to the other. I mean, it's really harmful. You get angry at the action. But you don't go and take that child by the shirt and start wailing on them, do you? You may want to, but you resist that. Why do you resist that? Because you love them in spite of what they just did. And so you take them and you find a punishment or a way of teaching them that this is not the way you interact with one another, this is not the way you treat one another, and you do this in a way that will lead to a better action in the future. So this is love controlling the anger. Being angry, yes, at the sin, but not allowing the anger to control the way we react or interact with the sin. That we bring love to bear upon it. This is love that liberates us from these kinds of emotions. Because if we don't, we give opportunity to the devil. And he says we should not. We should not give opportunity to the devil. Don't let anger simmer. This kind of anger that desires the suffering of others or retaliation toward others. Because it's a ticking time bomb in us, isn't it? We know that. We've seen enough. We've seen enough uh, Hallmark movies. We've seen enough uh, psycho psychology out there to know that people grow up in an environment where abuse is prevalent. And if they don't have a healthy way of dealing with that, constructively putting it to rest, they grow up and they replicate that same behavior in other ways. It becomes a ticking time bomb because it's not dealt with. And that's what Paul seems to be talking about. Anger, yes, but not anger that leads you to sin, that's under the control of the anger, but a healthy process of healing and dealing with it to put it away. Not to let it lie there and simmer, lest it become a future outlet that the enemy uses against us. In Christ, love liberates us from unhealthy and sinful anger. God is perfectly just, and every injustice will be settled. Every one, every single one, God will bring to account.
Thirdly, Paul exhorts us to practice uncommon generosity. Uncommon generosity. A truly renewed person does not practice a life of selfishness. He says, let the thief no longer steal. (laughs) Not only was the church lying, but they were stealing. This is another present tense. It was going on in the body. This was the report Paul had heard and received about the Ephesian church. They were lying to one another, just like was going on out in the culture. And they were stealing. They were robbing from one another. And probably from God's work. Christians should not steal. We can all agree, right? You understand that, right? We shouldn't steal. Paul uses this present tense to say that the one stealing should steal no more. That's a shocking implication. It was so common that Christians had to be taught not to steal. If we're honest... We have learned we should be honest. He told us to be truth speakers, right, to each other. If we're honest, stealing is common in our world today. Maybe it's unauthorized usage of software. Maybe it's pirated movies and video content or file-shared music. Retail prices are inflated just to cover for shoplifters. Did you know that? I'm sure you did. Employees, employers actually budget for employee stealing. They factor it in to their budgets for the year. Government taxes are based on the assumption that we're going to hide resources from them. Christians are not immune to this cultural epidemic. We can lie to landlords or employers to avoid financial responsibilities. We can justify doing personal work on company time or return something to a retailer that's actually damaged. In this day and culture, one of the things I've noticed, I don't go out into the retail world very much. uh, Maybe you look at that and my uh, value is just diminished in your eyes because of that. I don't know, but I just don't feel the need to go out into the retail arena. But when I'm out there, one thing I've noticed is most people that are working for an employer there seem to spend a lot of time on their phones. Now, maybe they're taking direct orders from the manager. I don't know, but sometimes it interferes with their ability to discharge their duties or to help people, customers in that place of business. Is that is that not stealing from an employer if he's paying you a good wage to pay attention to his business and do what's help the clients and customers that are coming in? I think so. Or we may return something to a retailer that, that we actually damaged. That's pretty common too because retailers have budgeted money into their budgets to account for people bringing back items so they don't even ask questions anymore. It's just a way of doing business now. It's just a cost of business. Or we may claim a larger tax write-off because it was for a good cause. Paul instructs us here to work, to do labor, honestly, through one's own energy and effort. Work. Working hard and well is a major issue in our culture today. Now, people blame it on COVID. They blame it on things we've been through in recent years. But we've been trending this way for a long time. We've become pretty comfortable 
here in Western civilization, so much so that we're now more inclined to want to be entertained or amused rather than to work. Studies show that increasing numbers of people are interested less in responsible work. In fact, if offered a job just to make enough money to have the essentials they need, a car, a place to live, and video games, then they're happy. They don't need anything else or want anything else. And Paul offers an important reason for work. He says the idea here is doing something good and worthwhile and constructive. Not just to build wealth or gain material things so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. He's contrasting life as a taker versus life as a giver. Life as a taker versus life as a giver. Before Christ, we lived selfishly. We are, considered, uh, we are concerned only about our own wants and needs and desires. We are step on anyone who gets in the way to advance and to gain. But once we sought to deprive others for our good, now we seek to share with others for their good. Selfless sharing is becoming Christ to others. This is a way that God shows Himself to others as we reflect His generous attitude. As we reflect His generosity, then others are pointed to Him and understand our God better. This carries the idea of benevolence and charity, obviously, but it also carries the idea of a life that practices God-honoring stewardship. Stewardship among Christians can be a hot-button issue. These statistics bear this out. More than 25% of American evangelicals give no money to their church. More than 25%. About 11% of evangelicals defined by belief never attend a church, so perhaps it makes sense that they not give. According to a survey, another 15% attend church but never put money in the offering. Giving historically increases with income and age. But the study notes that millennials and Gen Z are more likely to give directly to family, friends, or even strangers than to support institutions like the church. Here's, some interesting, here's an interesting breakdown. Percentage of income evangelicals give to a church. 10% of evangelicals give more than 8% of their income to church. 23% give between 2 and 8%. 42% give less than 2%. 26% give nothing. So, what that equates to is 68%, more than two-thirds of professing Christians, give less than 2% of their income to gospel work. Just let that sink in a minute. <laughs> Just think. We talk. We believe that our God owns it all, that He's sovereign, that He's in charge of everything, and that he, he has this incredible gospel message to advance, and yet our actions suggest something entirely different. We don't really believe in it. We're not willing to invest in it. In fact, our actions indicate that we think it belongs to us. Preacher, are we talking about tithing? Well, let's talk about tithing. Some people will say, I don't believe in tithing. That's an Old Testament principle, an Old Testament law. I agree with you. Tithing was Old Testament law. The tithe was required because the people were uncharitable. 
So God said, here's the basis. Here's the way we're going to take care of the needs. Bring 10%. Bring the tithe into the storehouse. What does that mean that I give 10% on the gross or on the net? These are questions I get asked. Does that mean I give 10% on gross income or net income? Does that mean I give based on my net worth or just income? Does that mean I must give even if I'm on a fixed income or have no income at all? You see how formulaic thinking works? You see, we're always looking for the loophole. We're always looking for the self-justification not to do it. This defies the biblical principles of giving designed by God. There's a vast difference between being a generous giver and merely a tipper. Now, I'm going to meddle. This is meddling, I know, but you're just going to have to bear it. I love you, but you're going to have to bear it. If I bring $5 and put it in the offering plate every week, and I say, but I'm giving, and I've done this. Look, years ago, in a previous life, this is the way I, I was doing business before a good brother sat me down and explained to me how this was supposed to work. He said, uh, you need to start tithing to your church. I said, I do tithe. He said, no, you don't. And then honestly, I waited till the end of the pay period to see if I had anything left. And then I would give God a tip, $5, $10, $20. Now, just do the math. If everyone, everyone attending church practiced that, you do the math. We couldn't even pay our light bill at this church. Now, fortunately, we have that percentage of people who give more, who give generously. But gratitude, gratitude fuels our stewardship. And when we're not stewards, faithful stewards of God's blessings and provisions in our lives, we're simply saying we're not grateful, that we think we're owed, we're presuming upon God. I can give whatever I feel like giving, you say, and I'm what I can able to give. I believe this demonstrates ingratitude and faithlessness toward God. Adrian Rogers, I think it was Adrian Rogers, said something like this, and I'm not sure I have the quote exactly right, but the spirit of it's there. This is what he said. He said, for a Christian living under grace, and that's the comparison. Well, tithing's Old Testament, so I don't have to operate according to tithe. I live, we live in the New Testament, so I can do whatever I want to do. Yes, you can. But he said, for a Christian under grace to allow a Jew under law to outgive him is a disgrace to grace. You get that, right? I'll say it again. Thank you for reminding me. For a Christian under grace to allow a Jew under law to outgive them is a disgrace to grace. The Bible tells us, teaches us, that we should give generously, that we should give cheerfully, that we should give gratefully, that we should give by faith. What does that mean? Gratitude and thanksgiving says that all I have came from God. Do you believe that? Everything I have has come from God. He owns it all. It's not mine. It's His. I'm merely the manager. I'm the overseer. 
of what he has entrusted to me. Faith says that all I need tomorrow will come from God. I can give generously because all that I have belongs to God. I can give generously because all that I will need tomorrow God will provide. Generous stewardship expresses worship of God, trust in God, and faith in God. Christians give cheerfully, generously, faithfully to God through the church to advance gospel work. The church expenses. I don't know, Bobby could probably speak to this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a figure out there. I'm guessing that just the utilities here for this building, this facility in which you're sitting very comfortably today, the temperature is just perfect, the lights are good, the seat's comfortable, but $8,000 a month, Bobby, is that close? Up or down? A little down, a little less than that, So, but you get the idea. That's just for the utilities. To advance gospel work, church's expenses are associated with gospel ministry. And as a testimony to our faith and gratitude in Christ, we give. The Bible describes Christian stewardship in the following ways. Just a few. And it talks a lot about it. Why are you getting so worked up, preacher? Because... The Bible talks about it a lot because our relationship with our finances, our money, is a big indicator of our spiritual walk with God. How we feel about money says a lot about how we feel about God. We're to give sacrificially. Jesus looked up, Luke 21, 1-4, and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you. Now some of you got excited because of the two copper coins, right? <laughs> Listen to the rest of the story. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Sacrificial giving. First fruits giving. Proverbs 3 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. According to God's provision. Deuteronomy 16 17. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has, that he has given you. Humble giving. Matthew 6 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Regular giving, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, as you have been blessed, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Freely giving, Luke 6, 38, Give and it will be given to you, good measure, Pressed down, shaken, running over. That's the way I sack up my garbage at home. Right? I spend more time sacking up the garbage, pressing it down to get more into the bag before I have to carry it out. And he says this is the way we should give. <laughs> Push it down so you can put more in. Crush it together. Take all the air out of it and bring it in. Full, packed. Cheerful giving and generous giving. 2 Corinthians 9. 
The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now some of you are going to go out here today and say the preacher's turned into a prosperity gospel preacher. He says if we just bring it in, we'll get blessed. Well, there's some truth to that. The scripture does indicate you'll be blessed. Not financially necessarily, but that God will be more to you than that money would ever be worth to you. That as you give those things up and turn those things over to Him, acknowledging that it came from Him to begin with, the void, the emptiness, the need in your life will be filled by your heavenly faithful Father. And that's a greater blessing than money will ever provide. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be, entrenched, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of His service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Uncommon generosity should mark us as new people in Christ. Fourth, we are to put on contagious purity. Contagious purity says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. In other words, let no rotten or worthless words come out of your mouth. This points to profanity, obscenity, putrid conversation, unfit conversation. Bad speech should not be allowed to journey out of your mouth. The Pharisees, the scribes, the disciples, you remember the scene, the disciples were eating, they hadn't properly washed their hands. And the Pharisees and the scribes were all upset about that. Jesus, why are you letting these men break the traditions of the elders? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 17 through 20, do, not, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Unwholesome speech begins a journey that leads to decay and destruction. You never know where it's going to land. It's like acid. It's like, it's like uh, bleach. You know, when you, uh, you put clothes in the washing area and there's bleach in there, right? And sometimes that will spill over or... You'll lay something down on an area where there's bleach and it just eats it away, right? Many, many years ago, I was uh, conducting a baptism out on a piece of property. And we, had, we were using a dunk tank. Don't judge us. It was a dunk tank. And we got it and the guys cleaned it up. They cleaned it and got it all ready for the baptismal. Filled it with water. I got in that water with a pair of pants on. And I'm telling you, within 10 minutes, they had turned a different shade of color. I was afraid they were going to come off before I could get out of the water. They'd made the mistake of leaving too much of their cleaning solutions in the water. 
So it is with our conversation. Unwholesome words have this journey that once they leave your mouth, you can't pull them back. And they travel. They travel to the ears and the hearts and the souls of others, and they are destructive. Paul says, let no one... Corrupt, no, let no corrupting speech leave your mouth. 2 Timothy 2.16 Shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto more ungodliness. You hear that? If you, you're engaged in a conversation and you think this is the way to draw even or to get retaliation and you let these unwholesome words come out all it does is lead to a greater increase of ungodliness. This is the fruit of those words. Paul seems to be saying the reverse is also true. Kind words also have a fruit quotient. They also lead to increase in godliness. Our culture is inundated with rotten speech. Entertainments, associations have desensitized us to this speech. We don't think anything about it. And Paul was in a culture that equally was filled with crude and profane and vile language. Sometimes they were even incorporated into the religious practices. Pure speech was then and it's now countercultural. Just like truth speaking. That which truly builds up and edifies properly. What does that look like? Well, Paul gives us some illustrations to that. You remember the two ladies that were having a problem in Philippi that he wrote to? Euodia and Syntyche? This is what he said. He said, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is edification. Paul says, yeah, I know, they have a problem there. They need to put that problem aside. They need to come together. They need to be brought together. You help them come together. Not participating in the swapping of unwholesome words, but changing the conversation. Acts chapter 18, there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, in many places, people would have heard that and said, oh, he's got that all wrong, and they would have gone out and just trashed him, Right? But Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. Edifying speech, not destructive, unwholesome speech. And so it goes on. Finally, we are to be like, we are to be, Christ-like witnesses. Christ-like witnesses. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This word grieve means to distress. It means to cause pain. It means to bring about deep emotional sadness or severe sorrow. Imagine that. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. When you came to Christ, the Spirit of God regenerated the heart, washed you with the Word made you a new creature, moved inside of you, took up residence in you. You are not alone. 
in your life, when you, when you do these things that counteract what God wants for you, when they, when they work against God, you grieve the Spirit of God. You cause deep emotional sadness and sorrow. First Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? While He is painful or powerful, we have the capacity to oppose Him, to treat Him contemptuously, to insult Him, to mock Him. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us not to quench the Spirit, not to extinguish it, not to suppress or to thwart. In our text here, the implication is that if we do not follow the pattern prescribed, we are essentially grieving the Spirit of God. Instead of putting away bitterness, we allow it to linger and to grow. As we allow it to grow, it turns into wrath. Frustration increases. It means that there's an ugliness seething under the surface, just like a volcano that suddenly become active. You know it's heating up, and you know it's going to explode. You just don't know when, under what conditions. Anger is now part of the person's disposition. Like that cartoon comic book character, the Hulk, right? It's always just one, one action away, one word away from flaring up. Clamor is anger readily and continually expressed. This is a person who no longer has any control whatsoever. Anger is always constantly flowing out of this life in many ways, through actions, through words, through attitudes. Then we have slander. Slander is abusive and scurrilous language directed at people, at persons, attacking them, bringing about harm and hurt to a soul. Malice is a wicked disposition that aggressively pursues others' hurts. What Paul presents is a stark contrast to verses 25 through 29. To avoid grieving the Spirit, believe the gospel. No longer walk as the Gentiles and lost people do in the futility of their reasoning, the emptiness of their own reasoning. Put on the new self. Practice countercultural truth, speaking to one another. Practice liberating love that swallows up unrighteous anger. Practice uncommon generosity, like God who is kind and generous. Practice contagious purity that spreads grace and not destruction. Practice Christ-likeness, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. These things encourage and fuel the Holy Spirit, not quench. God has designed you and saved you to be His ambassador, to be His witness. This is a mission that every believer has, not just those who go to the mission field, not just those who are called to full-time vocational ministry. Every believer has this responsibility to be God's ambassador as we go through life. The Great Commission is for all of us. He desires to make Himself known to this broken world through us. 
by the way we think, by the attitudes we bear, by the actions we take, by the words we share. Will they know Christ to be distinct from this world, to be truly glorious and beautiful? Far too often we fail to cooperate with His purposes. We're not strong enough to do it on our own. You can't will yourself to do this. But good news is, in Christ, the Spirit of God resides in us. Amen? The Spirit of God is in us. He is there. He is there to fill us, to overflow us, to empower us, that we might be His effective witnesses in this world. And that we might engage each other properly, even in this body. What do we do with this message? I think we must call upon Him and seek understanding and help to change. Lord, is my life an honorable display of Your goodness? Does my life, my actions, my words, my attitudes reflect Your grace? Am I grieving or quenching Your Spirit in any way? Show me. Grant me to desire, a desire to repent, to change. Make me an effective and passionate mirror reflecting Christ's forgiveness. Make me a true spirit-filled witness to friends, family, neighbors, the church. Do in me as you desire, Father. Empower me by your Spirit to put away anything and everything that hinders your grace working in me and through me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the challenge of your word. The word that we've heard through your faithful vessel, the Apostle Paul in writing, through your spirit working in and through him. And Lord, knowing that the challenges that we face are not uncommon, but that are common even in the body of Christ and have been, Lord, since the inception of the church. But we long to be distinct from this world. We long to truly be new people, new life, aliens. Not just to be odd, but Lord, aliens to be distinct and different, to manifest your greatness and your glory, your goodness, your generosity, your faithfulness. Make it so in us, Lord. For the sake of our community, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, I pray that you would bring your word to rest in our hearts today and produce fruit that's in keeping with your good pleasure. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.